0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the return of Tory sleaze, discussing the decision to send Western tanks to Ukraine, and looking at the rewilding of bison in Kent. First up, will Rishi Sunak be buried under 12 years of Tory baggage? That's the question that The Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, asks in her cover piece this week. She joins me now alongside long-serving civil servant and government advisor Jill Rutter. Katie, to start with, could you bring us up to speed with the many fires that Rishi Sunak is currently trying to put out?
2: Yes. So I think when Rishi Sunak first obviously became prime minister, second time lucky, um, he gave a speech on the steps of 10 Downing Street where he said he was going to you know, make sure his government was one of integrity. And it was read quite widely, I think, intended. To say after some of the psychodrama, the Boris Johnson years, the scandal, and obviously Liz Truss's short-lived premiership, this was a return to sensible government and putting much of this soap opera behind. And then there was a question of Rishi Sunak's poll ratings, which are higher than the Tory parties, and therefore could he bring the Tory party up, or actually will the Tory party just bring him down? And I think with these scandals which are rearing their head, there's a sense of, Perhaps it's more likely to be the latter at the moment unless he can find a way through. So the biggest one is Nadim Zahawi, and this is the fact that the current Tory party chairman is reported to have to pay a million-pound figure sum as a penalty to HMRC as part of a multi-million-pound settlement on his tax affairs. This is one that does go back to Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson appointed this man as Chancellor when it seems as though there was an investigation ongoing. Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust both say that when they then appointed Howie to their cabinets they were told by officials that there was you know no outstanding issue everything was settled so therefore there's a bit of a blame game going on in the advice. Then you have a in this you have the Richard Sharp row and this is about the BBC chairman's alleged role in helping to arrange an £800,000 loan for Boris Johnson when he was prime minister before he was appointed chairman. He denies all wrongdoing but there's now an investigation into that and then you also have the deputy prime minister Dominic Raab who's currently under investigation for bullying. He is a quite important ally to Rishi Sunak and you add to that Boris Johnson's honours list which I think is going to be a big political headache for Rishi Sunak and also just the fact that you have several MPs who have lost the whip recently so you could have more misconduct and it has a you know a look and probably a smell of general Tory sleaze and lots of these things do not directly relate to Rishi Sunak there are some questions of his judgment in terms of his appointments but lots of actually legacy issues from the Boris Johnson era but can he push them behind because he wants to be talking about policy and here we are talking about sleaze.
1: Jill, Katie's given a great sense there of this pile-up of of problems. You were a senior government advisor and civil servant at the heart of government for for many years. Out of the the list of of problems that Katie just gave us, which of those do you think will cause the greatest headache for Rishi Sunak in the long term?
3: I think it's interesting that one of the things that People are saying, uh, not that these are Rishi Sunak scandals, that he does have to take responsibility for appointing Dominic Raab, despite there being a lot of issues about Dominic Raab's behaviour, which were very well known and very well documented. He also brought back Gavin Williamson, who had to go really, really quickly, and appointed Swella Braverman, who had uh, left the Cabinet just a week before over apparent casualness with national security issues, forwarding emails, etc, a breach of the ministerial code. So he was already racking up some questions about his judgment in who he appointed, as Katie said. So I think the interesting question for these is, I think there are two issues. One is the Conservative Party generally, and the impression that they give of being a party mired in sleaze. And of course, one of the things Katie didn't mention is the Privileges Committee investigation into Boris Johnson's behaviour over Partygate, which will be running in parallel with the start of the COVID inquiry, which will be looking at one of the big policy areas and also reflecting on the decision-making of that government. So there are lots and lots of, you know, if you like, Boris Johnson-inspired landmines to come. But I think the question at the moment about Rishi Sunak is the way in which he deals with these issues. And what he's failed to do, as far as I can see, in the way he's reacted to Nadeem Zahawi, etc., is to make totally clear that he is handling these issues really, really differently. It's quite interesting, because I think it's a really interesting question about Nadim Zahawi and how on earth he thought he could take on the job as Chancellor when he was still engaged in retracted discussions with HMRC about how much tax he owed and what penalty would be payable. So I think he should have realized he should never have taken on that job. But Rishi Sunak, last week defending him, then saying more information's come out. Now I'm going to ask the independent advisor, at least he's got an independent advisor, to look at it. What will he do when he gets the independent advisor's report? How will he handle that? Will he be different from Boris Johnson? Because I think although Rishi Sunak's got the rhetoric of doing things differently from Boris Johnson and... At the moment, the scandals are not about Rishi Sunak himself, as they often were about Boris Johnson. But I think he's got to show that he can also handle them very differently from the way in which Boris Johnson did. So Boris Johnson notoriously refused to accept Alex Allen's verdict on Pretty Patel on the bullying case. Rishi Sunak, I think, be very interesting to see. I think it's very difficult for him to do very much other than accept whatever Sir Laurie Magnus comes up with as a verdict on Nadim Zahawi and whatever Adam Tolley comes up with as a verdict on Dominic Raab. So I think we'll be looking at that to see if Rishi Sunak is really doing things differently. And
1: Jill, Katie says on her piece that Rishi is very keen for the government to not be seen as this, the Conservatives, I should say, to not be seen as this sort of rich old boys club. But to what extent is it possible to even get away from that image when the Cabinet is worth as Katie says in her piece, a combined £700 million? Only
3: that? I mean, I thought Rishi Sunak himself was worth more than that. But anyway, that's uh, very interesting. I think it's very difficult because the sums that are involved here are just absolutely out of anyone, uh, anyone vaguely normal sort of realm of thinking. And Adim Sahawi having to pay £3.6 million or whatever in taxes... I mean, you know, I think I'm relatively well paid. That's very, very, you know, it's a lifetime of tax and much, much more. Boris Johnson feeling the need and being able to find someone willing to lend him £800,000 just to get him out of financial difficulties, not able to make do on the Prime Minister's salary, etc. I mean, these sums just are really, really difficult. It used to be said when I was a younger civil servant. They used to say that the Conservatives were always brought down by sex and Labour were always brought down by money. But what's really interesting now is it seems to be the Conservatives are really beset by all these money problems. And I think one of the things that's been very difficult for the civil service and the Cabinet Office in particular is dealing with the Prime Minister, when Boris Johnson, who was in such a financially compromised and difficult position. We've seen that issue coming up again and again, of having a prime minister who really didn't feel that his income as prime minister anywhere near covered his expenses. And we've seen that over the decoration of Number 10 Downing Street, where Rishi Sunak, of course, said, you know, I just wrote the cheque for redecorating my flat. We've seen it now over this big loan We see it over sort of, you know, other freebies that he seems to be inspired to take, you know, maybe gets into trouble over not declaring holidays and things like that. So it's a really interesting set of things. It does just convey the impression of a party that lives on a completely different planet from most of the rest of us.
1: Katie, you say in your piece that the Tories are already looking for scapegoats within Number 10. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so... Ultimately, as as we touched on, not all these things relate directly to Rishi Sunak. At the moment, most of them more don't than do. And I think on that wealth point, There's lots of Tory MPs who don't actually think a politician being wealthy is such a problem, but it's when you enter hypocrisy or sleaze that it suddenly moves from what some voters might think is aspirational to one where it becomes politically toxic, particularly during cost of living. And um, I think with the current rise, I mean, I think there's, there's two things here. So first off, lots of Tory MPs are just blaming Boris Johnson, the fact that you have Boris Johnson scandal still in the news. The Privileges Committee, as Jill mentions, and as I mentioned in the piece, it's going to be a televised affair, which is going to, just going to dredge up Partygate all over again. Mm. And you can have, you know, people summoned to give evidence on that. So I think there's a lot of saying, well, this Bring Back Boris movement we sometimes hear about, and people saying well, that seems for the birds right now. I mean... I'm not sure the movement's always that logical, so applying logic to it perhaps <laughs> isn't, isn't going to lead you to what, what's necessarily going to happen in terms of what MPs think. But I think secondly, in terms of people who are currently in roles, so there's, yes, blame at Boris Johnson's door, and then I think Simon Case. I'd be interested to hear what Jill thinks on this from a civil service perspective is the talk of... The civil service and also ministers in terms of this is a cabinet secretary who has served under three prime ministers was brought in he is relatively young to be a cabinet secretary by boris johnson and has sat through many of these scandals and i think if you look at the two most recent riots, so he has a role it seems according to uh, what richard Sharpe has said in the loan which obviously was then kept secret and then what did he know about nadim zahawi because Rishi Sunak, and I think it's said to say, is very frustrated by this, but both Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust say, well, we were never told about this settlement. Officials, ultimately, Propriety and Ethics suggested there's nothing to worry about here. Now, we can say, well, there are reports in the media about tax. Why didn't you ask more questions, Prime Minister? But... If Simon Case did know about it, I think that is the kind of thing where people might expect a quiet tap on the shoulder to say, well, Prime Minister, just so you know when you're doing this appointment, you should think about this. And therefore, it does feel to me as though the story is turning to actually Simon Case's role throughout these things. Remember, on Partygate, he had to actually recuse himself because he was embroiled in that and his suitability to, to stay in his position.
1: Jill, I would like, as, as Katie mentioned, that to get your opinion on the scapegoating of civil servants, if I may, in relation particularly to, to Simon case and what your, your thoughts are on that?
3: It's all a bit obscure because we what we don't know is what advice the civil service gave and whether they gave any advice on these things and whether that advice was taken. So it's quite difficult to distinguish the role of the civil service until we know, were they asleep on the job? Did they know things and pass them on to ministers and make a misjudgment there? Or did they advise ministers it would be extremely unwise to appoint x y or z and ministers said well i'm going to appoint them anyway so that we don't know that and until we really know that it's rather difficult to make a judgment about that i think one of the things they've say about simon case is he took the job for boris johnson knowing the sort of prime minister boris johnson was he'd seen his predecessor edged out or thrown under a bus take your pick when lord said was sacked by Boris Johnson moved decided to step down I think more accurately put but clearly was terminated ahead of schedule so he knew he was entering quite a difficult uh, arena when he came in but I think one of the things that this underlines is really the really difficult ask we make of a cabinet secretary so the cabinet secretary performs multiple roles he's the principal advisor to the Prime Minister. He's there to sort of make things work, protect the Prime Minister, help the Prime Minister do his day job. But we also look to him to provide leadership to the whole civil service and to act as an important peg in our system of upholding standards and propriety. And one of the troubles with the Boris Johnson premiership, Simon Case himself said to the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee, Back in the summer, that this was a government that liked to test the boundaries. I think one of the question marks about Simon Case is was, just be watching bits of cricket, was Simon Case helping ministers throw the balls over the boundary, or was he being a very active patroller, stopping ministers, you know, pushing those boundaries too far and exceeding them? And I think one of the criticisms of Simon Case is that. You know, if you ask a cabinet secretary to manage the civil service primary duties, which are to uphold the civil service code, honesty, integrity, objectivity, and impartiality, while also serving the government of the day, did he actually compromise some of those civil service values too far in order to facilitate the Boris Johnson premiership? And one of the criticisms you hear of Simon Case around is that he is principally a courtier a fixer who likes getting things done and serves the prime minister and other things are rather collateral damage. I thought he made a terrible decision back in December when he accepted that the civil service would investigate the party gate investigations. That clearly needed to be an independent investigation because it was involving number 10, potentially the cabinet office. He had to recuse himself, didn't make things much better to so sort of dump that on poor old Sue Gray. But he should have said, no, this is potentially an investigation that could lead to the downfall of a prime minister. And the civil service cannot do that. That is not a thing you can ask civil servants to do. We hope to see compromise from the start. I think he you know, showed bad judgment there. And I think he showed a lack of leadership when Sue Gray's report did eventually come out in taking responsibility for the failures of leadership, partly, of course, Boris Johnson, but Simon Case and Lord Sedwell certainly not exonerated by that, and they should have fessed up a bit more and taken more responsibility when the report came out. So so I think they're quite big question marks about Simon's authority with his colleagues. The interesting thing about this question of did Simon advise against any of these you know, things that the Prime Minister has got got into trouble over, successive Prime minister got into trouble over, is does Simon Case's advice... Or warnings, do they carry any authority? Is he a sort of, you know, scary figure that, you know, we used to always hear about ministers being terrorized by their permanent secretaries who would lift their eyebrows and say, That looks very inappropriate, Minister, and the minister would back down. Does anyone worry when Simon Case says, I think that's quite a bad idea, Prime Minister? If Simon Case ever says that?
1: And, Katie, just finally, Labour's accusation against Sunak is that Zahawi's situation has not been dealt with decisively. Do you think, though, that is that a fair accusation? Or is Sunak actually right to, to want to go through the sort of proper due process before sacking or not sacking his minister?
2: I think it's a tricky one. I think politically, it would be easier for Richard to just sack Nadim Zahawi when this, you know, news of the penalty came to light. Or at least, I think probably the easiest thing would have been to have a, a private conversation with Nadim Zahawi and get him to resign prior to Prime Minister's questions. But the promise that if you, you know if you go swiftly, there's a role for you in the future, and you spare blushes. If, as we've seen from various briefings from Nadim Zahawi's side, that he has no plans on leaving and thinks he's done nothing wrong, then you're in a position where you have to sack them to get them to go and I think that now that you know we had a long period where Labour kept saying where is your independent ethics advisor now is one so I think it's reasonable of Rishi Sunak to to use that process but every day that goes on I think Labour are just able to you know go on this attack line that Rishi Sunak is weak and it seems to me the writing is on the wall for Nadim Sahawi no one really thinks that he is going to stay in this party chairman role it's almost you know a stay of execution while we wait for this report, which I think they're trying to get actually very quickly. I think it could be a matter of days until you get the findings of this report. And then I don't think the is right, which points to the fact that it's politically painful the longer this goes on for Rishi Sunak.
3: What seems to me odd is that Rishi Sunak's prepared to keep Nadeem Zahawi in his cabinet, despite the fact that Nadim Zahawi clearly had the opportunity to come clean with Rishi Sunak about the position that he'd reached with HMRC before Rishi Sunak had to do Prime Minister's Questions a week ago or whatever when this first surfaced, and doesn't seem to have done that. And in those circumstances, it seems to me very odd that Rishi Sunak's prepared to keep him in his cabinet because you'd have thought if you can't trust your ministers to actually give you the information you need before you go out and do Prime Minister's Questions, you really... Don't really want those as colleagues,
1: thank you, Katie and Jill. Next, Mark Galliotti writes in the magazine about Europe's hollow armies. He says that the ongoing debate about sending armored equipment to Ukraine has exposed Europe's depleted military su- has exposed Europe's depleted military supplies. Owen Matthews, the Spectator's Russia correspondent, joins me now alongside General Ben Hodges, the former Commanding General of the United States Army Europe and currently Senior Advisor to the non-profit Human Rights First. Owen, could you start by summarising for our listeners the concessions that were made this week regarding sending tanks to Ukraine and, crucially, whether you think those tanks will play a decisive role on the battlefield?
4: Well, so far, we're talking about 12 British Challenger 2s developed in the 1970s. We're talking about, so far, just 12 German Leopards. Also, the platform was originally also designed in the 70s. Obviously, the modern versions, as General Hodges knows far better than I, are clearly updated from that. Versus Russia's stated pre-war armoured strength of 12,400 vehicles. It's not really going to be... Wunderwaffe, it's not going to be a major breakthrough. And the bigger question, which I'm very interested to to hear General Hodges' answer to, is whether this war has in fact proved that tanks are really obsolete on the modern battlefield in a situation where you have very sophisticated man portable anti tank weaponry, you have drone technology both in terms of surveillance and lethality, and you also have a extremely Accurate new generation artillery and rocketry, and um, that all of which mitigates against tank use. So the Ukrainians are obviously delighted. There's been a, a major row in Europe between. The Eastern European countries that want to send leopards and have been prevented to from Germany, so that's definitely bad for Ukraine. That there has been, you know, fractures appearing in the Western alliance. That's bad. But obviously, Ukraine has got, you know, some of its shopping list—not the 300 tanks that it's that it's asked for—but suddenly it's a start, and and you know, for Ukraine, any weaponry is welcome.
1: General Hodges, I wonder, what do you make of of Owen's analysis there? Do you think that the the tanks that Europe have finally agreed to send will make a crucial difference for Ukraine on the battlefield?
5: Well, of, of course, they're going to make a difference. And, and I'll come to that. But no one does ask a fair question. I mean, are tanks obsolete? And, and I would say the fact that the Ukrainians who have been in a uh, mortal battle for the last almost a year, the fact that they are clamoring for tanks, I mean, that's, that's quite an endorsement. Now, it absolutely is and should be the end of tanks that are improperly employed with crews that are not properly trained, that are not tanks that are not protected by infantry when they move through forests or, or uh, villages, that kind of a thing, they, they will and should be destroyed. But if you've got uh, tanks that are part of a what we call a combined arms formation, where you have mechanized infantry, whether they're in Bradleys or Martyrs and supported by self-propelled artillery. I can tell you every commander wants to have a tank because of what it represents. It's mobile, protected firepower. Now, every time I see a tank getting blown apart, it's sitting out in the wide open by itself, or it's moving through a village not protected by mechanized infantry. So handing over Leopard's or Abrams or Challengers to the Ukrainians by itself, that's not going to be the game changer. The game changer is that now they will have the potential for a large armored force up to a division uh, using Ukrainian tanks and armored infantry vehicles, captured Russian tanks and armored infantry vehicles, and now fleshing it out with what's coming from the West. That is a very powerful force. And the the task is for that armored force to penetrate the Russian linear defenses, all these trenches we've been hearing about. And I would recommend that they are going to aim towards Mariupol or Azov Sea, something like that, to cut off, to separate Crimea from everything else. Because Crimea is the decisive terrain. That's what matters.
1: Oh, and you mentioned earlier in this podcast the test of Western resolve. And I suppose regardless of how effective the tanks prove to be on the battlefield. The fact they're being sent at all from the West seems to me to signal a new phase of the war, or at least a new phase of Western support for Ukraine. Do you worry that NATO is perhaps being pulled closer towards the possibility of direct involvement and the risk of escalation?
4: Well, escalation I think is and should be the bottom line of Western strategic thinking. I mean, as we know from The brilliant Washington Post reporting about the run up to the war in that very first briefing that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave to Biden in the White House. His first question was, how do we avoid this military buildup? We're talking about October 2021, when he's presenting that very detailed operational intelligence that the Americans received. His first question is, how do we stop this becoming World War Three? And that's a totally legitimate question. And in that sense, actually, there is a fundamental disconnect between the Ukrainians and their Western allies. Because the Ukrainians, for very obvious reasons, they've been attacked. They want to win. They want to push it as hard as possible. You know, their, their, their shopping lists and their operational needs are just going to continue growing. But I think it is a fair question to actually ask at what point Western arms become direct Western involvement. And we have to agree that there is a point you know, at which there is you know, no doubt that NATO is directly involved. If we're talking about you know, ballistic, you know, conventional ballistic missiles, for instance, long-range rocketry that can actually strike deep inside the Russian Federation, attack aircraft, th- these, these are things that actually signify direct involvement. So there is a, a line, the question is, and the debate is, obviously, no one knows quite where that line is. And the line, unfortunately, is really sort of in the minds of the Russians, because the crucial point is that Russia has not mobilized to the extent that Ukraine has. Ukraine is constrained currently by only by material limitations. It's already fully mobilized. Society, economy, everything is a, is a war economy. Russia is not. It really isn't. And um, I haven't been to Russia for a couple of months, but I, I was there during the mobilization in September and, and through early October. Moscow has not noticed. The war is invisible in Moscow. And the only restraint on Putin is, is not a material one. It's a political one. It's very politically risky for him to announce more mobilization. It's very politically risky for him to devote whole sectors of the economy. But he may do it. He may be forced to do it. And the question is how to bleed him and achieve some kind of decisive victory for the Ukrainians on the ground without actually provoking Russia into a massive mobilization or a new patriotic war, which will make them actually far harder to defeat and will be more dangerous for Ukraine's security in the long term.
1: General Hodges, I mean, the, the picture Owen painted there seems like a very difficult balance to get right. I mean, do you worry about what Putin's response uh, may be perhaps further mobilization, which Owen which mentioned isn't off the table entirely?
5: So, of course, I reject Owen's uh, assumption or premise that if we give, and I assume you're talking about if we give Ukraine long-range precision weapons or attack aircraft, so that that still constitutes NATO direct involvement. I, I don't agree with that. If, if you mean that we are shooting or we are flying aircraft, then yes, but I think there is nobody Thinking that. And the last thing that the Kremlin wants is to see Russia versus NATO. Of course, they talk that now to justify why, after a year, they have done so poorly, I should say. So, it, you know, they need to be able to say it wasn't the stupid Ukrainians, it was all of NATO against them. But there is no appetite anywhere in the alliance from uh, the US, UK, Germany, Brussels to have NATO soldiers directly involved. Now, uh, I certainly hope and am confident that we are providing intelligence. Uh, certainly hope. And well, we we know that people are working overtime to deliver equipment, ammunition. That for sure is going on. But having said that, 500,000 people left Russia back in the fall during the first uh, mobilization. To get the hell out of there to avoid being mobilized. So that that told me that they have no stomach for this fight. They don't want to be there. And I don't think any of the Russian soldiers that are on the ground anywhere in trenches around uh, Bakhmut or Solodar or down along the Dnipro, I don't think any of them want to be there either. I am skeptical that the Kremlin could actually mobilize meaningful numbers, properly equip them, train them, and turn that into a force. I mean, I haven't seen any evidence that they are prepared to do that just yet. But, um, Owen, oh, I suspect you have better feel for on the ground what's, what's going on in Russia. I think that um, their their ability to to rebuild, replenish precision weapons, uh, modern tanks, all these things, is severely handicapped right now for a variety of reasons. And so, to me, the, the key is help Ukraine re-establish sovereignty over all of its territory that means crimea that means all of donbass demanding that the russians return the tens of thousands of uh, ukrainians who have been deported and of course war crimes i mean they've got to be held accountable this i think it would be a gigantic mistake on our part to press ukraine to go ahead and accept some sort of settlement where they get to keep the russians keep crimea ukraine will never be safe or secure and they'll never be able to rebuild their economy As long as Russia sits in Crimea.
1: I'd like to finish by asking you about the feasibility of of, of Ukraine taking back uh, Crimea, given that how it's been annexed since 2014, and the majority of the population at the last count was pro-Russian, unlike the rest of Ukraine. I mean, do you think there really is a a feasibility to uh, Ukraine taking back Crimea, even as as much as uh, Western forces may want it to?
5: Well, This, of course, this is what Ukraine wants to do, needs to do, and has to do. Crimea is the decisive terrain. If Russia sits there, they will forever be able to interdict commerce going in and out of Odessa and in and out of the mouth of the Dnipro. They will continue to block access into Sea of Azov. So all of Ukraine's access to the Black Sea, its ability to export grain that millions of people around the world depend on, all of that is done. And then Russia, of course, will be able to use Crimea as a launching pad, again, for missiles, rockets, aircraft, or the next special military operation in a couple of years, because they'll they'll just wait for us to lose interest as we do. So how do they get it back? To me, the key is they get it back by making it untenable for the Russians. I mean, there is, there's nowhere to hide on that Crimean Peninsula. You know, Sevastopol, Ray Charles could find that place. Saki, the big air base. Uh, Zhankoi is a massive logistics hub. There are dozens of these places on this peninsula. So, and there are also only two landlines of communication that connect it back to the mainland. One obviously is Kerch Bridge, which is already severely damaged, and I'm sure will be revisited by the Ukrainians. The other is the so-called Land Bridge that connects from Rostov through Mariupol, Melitopol, and into the peninsula. So you you isolate Crimea with long-range precision fires going after bridges, headquarters, storage sites, and making sure that repair crews can never finish Kerch Bridge. And then with that armored force I talked about, severing the the land bridge. And now you bring up HIMARS and every other precision weapon that the, the West needs to deliver, and you make Sevastopol unusable by the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, you make those air bases unusable you make the logistics hub unusable this is how they do it not a big frontal attack
1: and and owen what do you do you think do you think i mean ukraine as we all to do wants does want to take back crimea but is this an example is crimea an example of the the goals of ukraine and the goals of ukraine's western allies not possibly being aligned
4: well i think we have to ask ourselves a a, a very serious question is to what extent are we willing to fight a war not to liberate ukrainians who don't want to be under russian control but to compel those former citizens of ukraine who do want to be under russian control to compel them to be ukrainian again in the name of international borders I mean, there is, you know, a fundamental self-determination issue here. It's very clear in Crimea. I mean, yes, the annexation was illegal. Yes, the plebiscite, the, 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 the referendum was, was fixed. There were de- definitely serious problems. But I think it's, there's very little doubt that there's over, an overwhelming majority of the population of Crimea that actually wants to remain in Russia. That's Crimea. In Donbass, it's much more complicated because, in fact, the pro-Kiev population has left or been deported. But nonetheless, I mean, I've, I've been to Donbass, you know, a lot. I was last there in 2015. But the, clearly, there is a part of that population that does not wish to be Ukrainian. So, you know, we are essentially talking about a different kind of war when it gets to those areas. You're talking about a war, essentially, of to compel people to return to Ukraine, and they don't want to do that. So you actually find yourself in a sort of morally and politically much more difficult territory there.
1: Thank you, Owen and General Hodges. Finally, the Spectator's Gus Carter writes in the magazine this week about a project that reintroduces bison to Kent. He joins me now alongside Stanley Johnson, a former MEP who has held a number of roles in conservation. Gus. Bison have been extinct in Britain since the
0: Ice Age, so why are they being reintroduced now? Well, the idea is is that um, what these what these four bison should do is they'll kind of stroll around this ancient bit of woodland just north of Canterbury and they'll kind of smash stuff up they'll you know they'll knock over trees, they'll uh, chew the bark off of of wood they'll roll around in the ground. Uh, And all of this kind of thing is supposed to create a kind of different sort of habitat in which kind of more plants will be able to grow, which means more insects, which means more animals, and that there should be a kind of a greater variety because of the very kind of specific actions that the bison carry out in this woodland.
1: Stanley, what do you make of the reintroduction of of these animals? I mean, isn't it, um, can you see the objection from people who say that bison have been extinct for so long that they don't really belong in a landscape such as modern England. We're not talking about an animal, after all, that went extinct, you know, a century or
6: so ago. We're talking thousands and thousands of, of years. Well, that may be true of, of the United Kingdom, but it's certainly not true of, of, of Europe. I have been, I have been to Bela which is a, a wonderful national park where there is a very substantial herd of bison running into the running into the hundreds, and it's right on the border between Poland and Belarusia. Now, that particular herd was reintroduced in, I think, about the 1920s, but there's certainly been bison in Europe um, <laughs> very much more recently than thousands of years ago. And I've had the good fortune um, for some years to be a patron of the... the rewilding Europe project, which is a vast project working in, in many countries in Europe, and it does indeed have some uh, some rewilding bison projects in the Carpathian mountains and in Bulgaria as well, so uh, I think the objection you just raised is, 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 is a bit is a bit frivolous. Um, in any case, there is a fantastically substantial reason and it's been picked up well in Gus's article for bringing back um, bison, bringing back indeed other uh, other species which have disappeared from these islands into the United Kingdom. And that is to do with, with the whole um, I- important ecological effect those animals can have. Now, of course, I- I'm not an expert particularly on rewilding bison, but you do need a certain scale here And some of the projects in Europe where bison have been introduced and have been, as it were, thriving, of course, have perhaps more more land than is available in in Kent at the moment, but I think we're only talking about about four or five. Hasn't there been a, a, a
0: calf recently?
6: In in yes. in yes, it
0: was actually they were they were quite surprised. They didn't know that the uh, that one of the females that they brought over was pregnant, and apparently that's actually an evolutionary thing. The females have developed. a to kind of hide their pregnancies so that they can't be targeted by 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 predators. I I, I take
4: I yeah, yeah no it is.
6: Right. I think this is the most exciting project, absolutely terrific. I think it's wonderful that the Spectator is running is running an article. I remember writing an article with the Spectator in in May nineteen sixty nine about a, a a reservoir on Dartmoor. So it is always good to see the Spectator picking up these environmental themes. But this is a, a much bigger theme than just. And um, I've been involved, for example, in looking at the, the, the question of rewilding beavers in part of where I live, which is down in, in Somerset, and even to the extent that the great beaver experts have come and spotted, spotted places. All I can say is because of all the flooding, you can be absolutely sure any beavers, which we had put in, would have been washed away. They'd be probably quite happy to be washed away. But well well done. And I do congratulate I congratulate the Wildlife Trust. I mean, Craig Bennett, I know well. He's the director of the Wildlife Trust. And of course, you've got the Kent Wildlife Trust here. You've got, I think it's the, the Wildwood Trust uh, uh, as well, and of course, don't forget the people's postcode lottery, and you mentioned these in your in your article, Gus. So well done, the um, spectator. This is the most important and impressive project. Well, that's very kind of you, Stanley. Project. I
0: think I don't quite agree with you on the point that it's frivolous to question whether or not we should bring back an animal that's been extinct for, I mean, truly thousands and thousands of years. And uh, in fact... Extinct, and
6: if, uh, hold on. Which has not been known. The animal is not extinct. That's one sure is not extinct. The, the bison, you know, has, has, is, is not extinct. It's, Sorry, in,
1: in, this, it's like living in this country. Okay,
0: yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, not to be a nitpicker, but but Britain had steppe bison, which are extinct. These are European bison. So a slightly different species. I do well, it might be a subspecies. <laughs> I think, you are being technical.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we really are yeah, nitpicking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs>
4: what, what you-
0: but I do think, I do think there's a kind of question there, and I certainly don't think it's frivolous. You know, perhaps bison are uh, not that dangerous. I do touch on that in the piece. But you know, something like wolves. You know, in France, there's a real movement against against bringing back wolves. People have a very kind of a natural aversion to these things. Well, um, I
6: have a natural aversion to people, I can tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the, wolf, the more wolves uh, come. To the the day, <laughs> well, well, Stanley, they-
1: I suppose the bigger question then is, what do you consider uh, are the necessary conditions for a successful rewilding project? And what do you think, I suppose, are valid concerns to have about the reintroduction of certain animals. I'll give you an example. We ran a piece by a man called Simon Cooper in the magazine a couple of years ago who, from a conservationist perspective, was worried about the reintroduction of beavers because he thought that their dams could cause serious problems for chalk streams. So that's just one example of of a kind of ecosystem that he worries about the balance of it. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on Well, let me, let me
6: take another view. Another. I've just come back from the Montreal... Meeting the so-called Kunming-Montreal meeting, which was the Convention on Biological Diversity, it 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 came out as you probably know with some very impressive targets. We want to have thirty uh, percent rewilding, sorry, thirty percent, thirty percent protected land and 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 sea in the world, including of course individual countries. Now Britain has a big challenge big challenge on this one to to do it. There's some huge economic benefits in rewilding to take something which is not, not bison, but I've been studying and other people have been studying the impact and the economic importance of elephants in the forest. Many of those forests in West Africa simply would not work Without the the wild elephants in there, you know, moving the trees, moving the seats around, and so on and so forth, and that's true. And if you take the the case of the beavers, and the case of uh, of other of animals, um, the wolves. You're right. You you mentioned the wolves. You mentioned the bears. I recently had a chance to visit a rewilding project in the Apennines. It was only a hundred only a hundred miles from Rome, and there were bears. There were Wolves. Some of those bears, of course, have been there since since Roman times. They're actually they're actually called the Marseillan bears. Well, yes, you've got to be careful, and, and your will figure, Gus, which you raised that that perhaps a chance that one in under, in, in eight hundred encounters with a bison might result in injury. That I would have thought is a uh, odds are very much worth risking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I suppose finally, Stanley, then, I wonder, do you agree then with the Woodland Trust who Gus quotes in his piece, who said that we can't simply
6: conserve, we need to recreate. Is that your the view you would take? I think he's absolutely true. If you look at the shattering figures, to do with the decline of wildlife in the United Kingdom over the last forty years, it is just stunning. I think we've lost something like forty percent of all our wildlife in the last in the last forty years. so yes, we do have to recreate of course, scale is vitally important, and that I think is the is the query obviously people are going to have when you've got an animal which actually requires a huge range if it's not a bit you know supplemented in his, in its diet it does require a huge range, and I think you have to say to yourself is that range available in uh, parts of the the United Kingdom? And maybe we will see um, some thought given to, given to that. Possibly you know, the four plus bison is the maximum those, the, the, the area could possibly manage, but I still think it's worth having.
1: Thank you, Gus and Stanley. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.